0: Turn in your Bibles to the book of Job. Next up in our year-long trek through the entirety of scriptures, we're making our way into the Hebrew wisdom literature. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs. And if you're in the reading plan with us, you finished Job yesterday, and you'll begin Proverbs tomorrow. One of the great questions posited by the Hebrew wisdom literature is the problem of evil. Philosophically, the problem of evil is often posed thusly, if God is omnipotent or all-powerful and omnibenevolent or all-good, why does evil exist? If God is indeed all-powerful, he could stop evil from transpiring completely, but obviously he does not. If God were all-good, he would oppose evil and therefore prevent it in every way, but he doesn't. Therefore, God is either not all-powerful or not all-good or perhaps non-existent altogether, Or to put it in a way that resonates more with you and I, how does the Bible's picture of a God who creates the universe as an act of love and goodness make sense in a world where babies are often born disabled? How does the image of a kind and loving God make sense in a world where children are beaten and sexually abused? where refugees drown in their desperate attempt to escape murdering hordes of religious fundamentalists, where mass shootings are as ordinary and American as reality TV, where cancer invades the bodies of those we love, where evil is a reality readily accessible every moment of every day. And interestingly, the question is anything but new. Many scholars speculate the book of Job may well be the oldest book in this library of writings we call the Bible. And in my experience, the problem of evil is one of, if not the, single greatest hurdle in keeping people from coming to faith in Jesus or compelling many to abandon their faith altogether. So tonight, I wanna outline the basic idea of Job and then in the weeks to come, we'll do our best to work through the implications. Are you guys ready? Now first we need to understand Job as a work of art in the specific sense, not in the, oh, the Bible is so beautiful, it's a work of art sense, but in the sense that Job is an ancient epic poem. And it's helpful to think of Job sharing shelf space with Shakespeare's Macbeth or Milton's Paradise Lost. Job presents a story, yes, but it does so using the vehicle of poetry rather than prose. So think of it almost like a play. And this play opens with a narrative prologue before it launches into its lyrical storytelling. And this prologue is significant because in it, the reader is privy to a scene that remains completely unknown to Job throughout the entirety of the book. And as we'll see, this fascinating setup emphasizes one of the great thrusts of Job, how little humanity understands the mechanics of the universe. So with that in mind, let's read Job chapter 1 beginning in the first verse. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen and 500 donkeys, and a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters and eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. Now we, the the reader or the audience, are introduced to this incredible character in Job. He's rich. To begin with, he's famous, he's got 10 freaking kids, and the text describes him as blameless. And then in verse 6, we're dropped into an incredible scene. One day the angels came to present, present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth in it. Now, remember, this is a poem, so we, the readers, are not meant to read this literally. We're meant to read it literarily, and by literarily, I don't mean not true. I simply mean that there's, there's poetic imagery on display here, not necessarily implied as concrete and specific facts in the narrative. Think of the way the Psalms describe the trees as clapping or the stars as dancing. So there's some amazing imagery here. Heaven, or God's space, is depicted as an ancient Near Eastern throne room, and the royal court enters. They're uh, angels, or depending on your translation, the sons of God. And this is just an ancient Hebrew moniker for created beings that serve God in the running of the universe. And then the scene gets interrupted. I imagine it like the the back door being flung open and in steps this shadowy, sinister figure. You know, if this were a movie, the character might be the wayward prince or the black sheep of the family, The, the leader of a rebellion come to challenge the king. And here in the text, it's someone called Satan, or in Hebrew, Hasatan, uh, the Satan. It's just a term or a title that means the accuser. And God asks where the Satan has come from, and Satan answers somewhat ambiguously by saying he's been roaming the world. Read on in verse 8. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied, have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Now pause for a moment. There's a, there's a lot packed into this simple exchange. The Satan is attempting a public shaming of God by accusing Job of a superficial love for God and accusing God of being the cause behind that superficial love because God stacks the deck by lavishing Job with a painless, blessed life free of suffering. So why wouldn't Job love God? But of course, the greater inference is that God is a control freak. Satan is suggesting Job is not genuinely free to love God or to not love God because God manipulates Job to love God is a shallow puppet master, and Job is his helpless yes man. And then in verse 12, it says, The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Notice in verse 11, it's weird, but Satan dares God to strike Job. And here in verse 12, God effectively denies him. God says, no, I don't do that. I'm not like that. You are the one who wants to ruin Job's life. And even so, this ancient poem takes a fascinating, if not frustrating, turn as God does lift his hand of protection from Job. Why? Well, this story simply doesn't say ever actually. And I don't think that the idea is that we're not meant to guess at it or to ask questions. Those are important tasks for the disciple of Jesus. But I do think it means that the story we're reading is about something else. So read on in verse 13. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby. And And the Sabians attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put their servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert, struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. So in the narrative, tragedy descends on Job. And because it's a poem, it's hyper stylized, rendered as absolute worst case scenario in rapid succession. It's very much like a stage play in that way. His sons die, his daughters die, all his wealth is undone, his hope is destroyed, and he's left with a wife who later shouts at Job, curse God, and die, Which seems, seems extreme, but that's the kind of thing I feel like saying when someone talks or texts at the movies. I don't say it, of course, but it, it, it runs through my head a time or two. But then watch what happens in verse 20. Job begins an ancient Near Eastern expression of grief. It says that this Job got up, tore his clothes, and shaved his head. And then he fell to the ground in worship. And then Job says... Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Now, I want to stop here and talk about what Job just said. Easily the most famous quoted line from the entire book, Job's statement here may indeed be one of the most famous lines in the entirety of Scripture. And it's wrong, most of us have heard Job's words eke their way out in the wake of some tragedy, a parent weeping over the death of their child. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. The person whose dreams have shattered, whose family has slipped into ruin, whose marriage has crumbled, the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. You know, how, how stoic it sounds, how resilient and godly it may feel on our trembling lips, and how well-intentioned the hearts of many who have said exactly this but what if it's wrong? What if this is horrific theology? Because Job is saying, The Lord did this. God did this to me. Is that true? In the story, the Satan. Is responsible and yet Job says that it was God. In fact, as Job's logic continues to develop over the course of the story, I believe personally that his theology is not only wrong, I would argue that the entire message of the book of Job is to reveal how very wrong it is. And there's a fascinating dynamic at work in Job. Thanks to the bizarre prologue, the reader has access to game-changing information that the story's protagonist does not. And we see behind the curtain and observe the awful hand of the Satan descend on Job. And of course, the story doesn't tell us why. In this poem, God says yes, but we know that it wasn't God's idea or God's doing. Job doesn't know that. Job believes that his bankruptcy, the death of his children, the disaster that has become of his life is all God. Now the story goes on and in steps Job's friends. So skip over to chapter 2. And let's read beginning in verse 11. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Naamathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. From here on, The majority of the book is dedicated to an ongoing debate between Job and his friends about the problem of evil. And both friends posit the question, why? Why did Job lose everything? And we, the readers, are drawn across the pages of the story by the same desire for answers, and yet the answers we're looking for are never revealed. Spoiler alert, the book is about something else. Job and his friends are caught in a recursive loop by working off the same bad theology. Both Job and his pals assume that Job's suffering was from God's hand, or to put it in another way, that God is in control of everything that happens in the world. And using the same horrific logic, Job and his friends arrive at two very different conclusions. Let's have a look at these friends, shall we? Turn to chapter 4 and let's begin reading in verse 7. Consider now who, being innocent, has ever perished. Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. At the breath of God, they perish. So Job's friends begin to argue for their idea of God's justice, what scholars call the retribution principle. Praises and obedience go up blessing comes down. And honestly, there's a certain element of truth in this cause and effect sort of interpretation of the universe, but when simplified and applied as a blanket statement, it begins to sound more like something uh, like karma. Bad things happen to bad people, good things happen to good people, a concept many of us know did not pan out well for Earl Hickey. The idea is if you love and worship God, good things will happen and God will spare you from evil, but if you don't, Disaster is inevitable. Is this true across the board? No, obviously not. Just listen to this dumb line. Who, being innocent, has ever perished? Oh, I can think of one or two. How about every child ever beaten to death by abusive parents? How about every baby destroyed by the implements of abortion? but Job's friends persist. Where were the upright ever destroyed? Well, Jesus comes to mind to begin with, and and the apostles, and Paul, and every martyr ever. The point is that Job's friends are wrong. Job is innocent, so let's go to the innocent guy and see if his take on the situation is any better. Turn back to chapter 3. Now remember, Job began with this whole the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away bit, but as time goes on, he, he begins to come apart. And I've seen this happen so many times. Tragedy descends, the death of a loved one in particular. And initially, the well meaning family and friends will bow themselves up with Job's logic the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. And this carries them through, say, the funeral or the first few days after the tragedy. And then as the ordinariness of life carries on, the new emptiness of their home begins to gnaw at them and doubt gives way to despair, gives way to anger, gives way to defeat. At first, Job refuses to accuse God of of wrongdoing directly. But as the story unfolds, it's like he can't accuse God of enough wrongdoing. And why not? I mean, after all, Job is following his logic to its inevitable conclusion. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away leads to a very dark place. Read chapter 3, beginning in the first verse. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, may the day of my birth perish. And the night that said a boy is conceived, that day may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine on it. May gloom and utter darkness claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm it. That night may thick darkness seize it. May it not be included among the days of the year, nor be entered in any of the months. May that night be barren. May no shout of joy be heard in it. May those who curse days curse that day those who are ready to rouse Leviathan. Job has begun to doubt the goodness of God's character. God exists, sure, but is he really all that good? How can he be? And remember, we're reading ancient poetry, so Job isn't necessarily making factual doctrinal statements. He's making feeling statements. But even so, Job carries on like this into the book. Later he'll say, although I'm blameless, I have no concern for myself. I despise my own life. It's all the same. That's why I say, he, God, destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When a scourge brings sudden death, he mocks the despair of the innocent. When a land falls into the hands of the wicked, he blindfolds its judges. If it's not he, then who is it? Job is saying, God's not righteous. He's not just. He's not fair. If he controls everything, how can he be? In chapter 10, he says, If I'm guilty, woe to me. Even if I am innocent, I cannot lift my head. I'm full of shame and drowned in my affliction. If I hold my head high, you, God, stalk me like a lion and again display your awesome power against me. To Job, God has become like a lion that toys with its dying prey, a cruel and sadistic God indeed. Is Job right? No, this is horrific theology. In fact, the New Testament describes a lion who roams around seeking someone to devour, and it isn't God, it's the Satan. Here, Job is accusing God of being like Satan. And Job isn't alone. So, so many hold dearly to a theology that depicts God as having more in common with Satan than with Jesus. As John Wesley said to George Whitfield, the famous Calvinist, your God is my devil. One scholar said of the book of Job, to the degree that people don't take Satan seriously, they attribute evil to God. In tonight's story, Job begins his suffering unwilling to accuse God of wrongdoing, but as the story goes on, Job accuses God of all sorts of wrongdoing. Job simply follows his logic that everything, including tragedy, comes from God's hand. And the story goes on, Job goes to bat with his friends for for most of it. And I think one reason why Job is so confusing is because each character has some blend of bad theology and good theology peppered in. What I mean is that most of the book features Job and his friends spouting awful theology. They They either say things that aren't true or they reduce concepts like God's justice into horribly simplistic terms. Or they say things that aren't true in this particular case. For example, one famous line in chapter 5 reads, Blessed is the one who the Lord corrects. And this line gets picked up by New Testament authors and used in a different context later on, meaning it's a true statement, but it isn't true, of Job's particular case because Job isn't under God's discipline, but rather under Satan's oppression. What I'm getting at is that the book is simply too complicated to read in a black-and-white sort of way. In fact, Greg Boyd says this, This book is far too subtle to paint everything in either-or terms. It artfully paints a thoroughly ambiguous picture of the cosmos where those who are basically in the wrong sometimes speak right, and those whose hearts are basically right nevertheless speak many untruths. As this complicated story carries on, Job and his friends argue incessantly until finally God himself shows up. Turn over to Job, chapter 38. And God shows up not as a gentle therapist or even the still small voice mentioned elsewhere in scripture, but as a hurricane. And now we, the readers, are on the edge of our seats with anticipation. Finally, God himself will resolve the problem of evil. At the very least, he might clear the air with Job and say, oh, it wasn't my idea, it was the Satan, and here's why I agreed, or whatever he has to say. But weirdly, God starts asking questions. In verse 30, or chapter 38, verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Who laid its cornerstone while the the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Basically, God begins to go off on Job. He challenges Job with questions about creation, about the oceans and the land and the cosmos and the animal kingdom. I mean, this carries on for two chapters. And then in chapters 40 and 41, God brings up two ancient monsters, behemoth and Leviathan. And there's all sorts of debate over these two organisms. Some folks insist that they, they must actually be a hippo and a crocodile, but the majority of scholars believe they are symbolic entities in ancient Near Eastern thinking representative of chaos and evil. So God is drawing Job's attention to the incredible complexity of the universe. He's challenging Job with the realization that there are forces of evil at work in the world that Job neither sees nor understands. There is a wild, dangerous freedom to the universe. And Job simply has no clue. And eventually, he seems to come to terms with his ignorance. Turn over to chapter 42. In verse 1, it says, Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question, and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes." So Job repents. He admits his wrong thinking and acknowledges that he has no idea what he's talking about. And then get this read on in verse 7. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I'm angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. What the heck? You know, we we know that most of what Job has said was way off, so what's this all about? Well, the leading theory is that the Hebrew word used here for truth implies that God is affirming Job's repentant character. He's not necessarily his misplaced theology. Remember, this is one of, if not the oldest book in the Bible, so translation is, is tricky. God is declaring Job righteous because... Through it all, he argued with God in God's presence, and he clung to God, even in the midst of his suffering. He didn't run off to blog about God or have some dramatic deconversion experience and write a song about it. You know, he took his anger to God himself. And I mean, notice when you read the story that Job was absolutely crippled with despair and with rage, and he directed all of it at God. Or to put it another way, he prayed through it all his outrage and lament carried on in the context of his relationship with God. And God loves that, frankly. Get that. Even though Job's venting is, I think, blasphemous at times, even though his honesty is brutal, God validates it. Because God is a safe place even in despair and frustration And incredibly, the story carries on with what seems like a happy ending. In fact, it says Job is even more blessed after his suffering than before it. So let's take a step back, try to put this all together before we end tonight. I have three thoughts for us. And the first is the simple observation that there are no easy answers. This is admission number one in discussing the problem of evil. Now, hear me. I didn't say that there are no answers. I think that there are and that they're tremendously important. But even so, there's a mystery at the heart of the universe. And theodicy, or you know, a theology that answers the problem of evil, it's called a theodicy. It's, it's one of the most dense, tricky complicated areas of study in all of the scriptures. It's been an area of great controversy and debate in the church for hundreds and hundreds of years. And next week, we'll begin discussing the options of theodicy, and I will offer as best as I can my own theodicy. And if you know me at all, it doesn't take long to pick up on the fact that this particular area is one of my great passions in theology. I've seen how often a problematic theodicy has absolutely wrecked the character of God, and the shaky faith of those attempting to follow Jesus. In fact, I uh, used to teach a four-week class on theodicy at Bridgetown, the church that planted us back in the fall. So uh, we're going to start that back up in a few months if you really want to talk about it for hours and hours (laughs) at a time. But a word of caution, every theory has a hole or two. I believe I've done my best to settle on the best possible option, but my view has holes for sure. And I want you guys to be suspect of the enterprising theologian who offers all the answers, who offers ironclad dogma and a bulletproof doctrine of their own theodicy, to suggest as much as, at best, ignorant, and at worst, I think, disastrously misplaced, because there's a curtain most of us never get to pull aside. Why is one baby born into the arms of a loving and nurturing family while another is born into the clutches of a pedophile? Why does a young woman step off a bus at night to be abducted by a rapist when, had she gotten off a half hour earlier, their paths would have never crossed? Why am I here with you guys, with a job, with a family, on the west coast of affluent America, when men and women ten times my character live in abject poverty? or or under the horror of unending civil war. I believe personally that the scriptures do give us helpful answers for understanding the why of evil in the world, but at some point, every theodicy will hit the ceiling of finite understanding. In fact, modern science seems to affirm this with something called chaos theory or complexity theory, meaning we don't know. And once again, Greg Boyd puts it this way, we are ignorant human beings living in a very mysterious, unfathomably complex creation that's torn apart by war. We have very little understanding about anything. And if we forget all that we don't know, we'll start judging God for evil or judging other people. The whole point of the book of Job is this. If we remember our ignorance, we won't judge God, as Job did, or people, as Job's friends did. There are just no easy answers. And secondly, there is a place for lament. I think many of us don't know how to grieve. You know, I didn't. Uh, my dad died suddenly two years ago with very little warning. And, and until then, nothing quite so tragic had ever hit so close to home for me personally. My life has been charmed in that way for better or for worse. And I had no idea what to do. Grieve? How does, how does one do that? And I think there are, there are a myriad of influencing factors that contribute to this. You know, the Greek Stoicism of the ancient Mediterranean that influences us, medieval Catholicism's means of suffering your way into God's favor, Western secularism, the myth of progress, whatever the reason. The point is, we as a culture have largely forgotten how to lament, even in the church. I mean, consider for a moment the fact that about two-thirds of every song in the book of Psalms is a song of lament, and compare that to modern worship music. You know the folks in the band were asking me earlier this week if there's any specific direction for the songs um, this Sunday, and I thought a song of lament could be fantastic, but I don't know of any. Of course, I don't know a ton about worship music, so I asked a friend who's a worship singer, songwriter, songwriter, and he didn't have a single option in his church's repertoire. And it seems like often there's just no room for grief in the church. That like gets in the way of all the sing-songy celebration. But look at the cycle in the story of Job. There's tragedy, followed immediately by grief, which is then confronted by faith, which leads to despair, ironically, and then doubt, anger, rebuke, and then repentance, and finally, comfort. I think most living people familiar with the human condition can recognize this cycle in ways big or small in their own lives, and it's often the case that we need to run the whole course. And instead, many of us are inclined to leap from grief to repentance, or directly from tragedy to comfort. And it just doesn't work that way. Many of us don't know any better. I mean, I didn't. When my dad died, I experienced profound pain, and then I found myself wondering, well, now what? So I attempted to wander immediately into comfort, and I had no idea why it wasn't working. And for so many others, their story moves down the cycle to about doubt, and then they bell out without ever making it through to repentance and to comfort. I mean, good grief, I've seen this countless times. Just the other day, I heard a sociologist describe the deconversion experience as the new conversion experience, meaning the moment people abandon their belief rather than finding it is the new religious epiphany for a generation. But humans are emotionally complicated things. In order to work toward maturity, wisdom, and emotional health, we often need to make our own cumbersome trek through the entire spectrum of emotions, good and bad. And some of you are in that cycle tonight. Keep going. And the final thing I want to point out before we end tonight is that I think Job presents the reader with an option to trust. No, in the story, God does not answer the question why. The puzzle box of the Odyssey remains sealed with some sort of nearly incomprehensible lock. In fact, in the story, rather than answering Job's question, God asks questions of his own. And though it's an intense way to go about it, God is making a staggering point. As God, he knows things that we do not. And hear me on this because there's a tension at play here. I'm often frustrated by the theological tendency to answer hard questions with, well, God is God and we're not. I think this becomes a lazy excuse for bad theology. And even so, guess what? God is God and we're not. Disciples of Jesus have agreed to trust in God's goodness and in the way he does or does not work things out in the universe, of course, Trust is a tricky thing. Most of us get worse, not better, at trust as we get older. And interestingly, small children are incredibly capable of unwavering trust. You know, my kid maintains this bizarre belief that if I've got him in my grip at all, surely he can twist and flail and jump, and no harm can possibly befall him. You know, he he likes to do this thing lots of kids uh, enjoy where he lies over the soles of my feet and I lift him into the air and he's flying just so he can fling himself off of my feet and plummet three feet to the ground. And I'm always thinking, oh, how sweet, he trusts me so deeply. Now stop it before you die. So it's no surprise that uh, Jesus uses small children as an example of what greatness looks like in God's kingdom. And remember, the concept of trust for the disciple of Jesus is not some sort of blind faith in which you become psychologically convinced that no evil will ever find you. In fact, when you read the New Testament, you begin to suspect the opposite is sometimes true. In the same way, trust for us does not indicate belief that when bad things do happen, God is behind them. This is a different type of trust, the the unwavering resolve to believe in God's goodness. In spite of evil. Trust means that no matter what happens, God is God, and and that means that God is good. God is a good and loving Father. He's with you. You're never left to go it alone, And, and what's more, God is at war with evil, working with infinite creativity and intelligence to bring good out of the evil he does not cause or want. And in the end, God will put evil out for good. Satan, suffering, tragedy, and death will be forever destroyed. That is the inevitability to which we are en route. And maybe tonight you're here and you're in the tangles of evil. Maybe your story feels like Job's story, you know, something horrific. Or perhaps it's not all that dramatic, but it's, it's just really hard. Maybe because your story isn't as tragic as Job's or someone else's, you haven't allowed yourself to acknowledge the fact that things are hard right now. Maybe it's something less concrete. Maybe it's the ever-present sense of, is this it? And face it, as human beings, we were intended for the goodness of Eden and yet find ourselves trapped in the frustrating epoch of in between wedged involuntarily into the stifling gap between the world as it should be and the world as it is. We've all been raised on television to believe that one day we'd all be millionaires and movie stars and rock stars and social media has us chasing after sad, stupid little staged photos of contrived moments created to market our fabricated lives to strangers who don't care. All of it in an effort to somehow propel us over this hump of meaninglessness and into a world where we'll become the world changers we were promised we could be. But we won't. And we're slowly learning that fact. Every one of us has known a taste of disappointment. We've all seen the world as it should be and as it should not be. And we've had to acknowledge that something isn't right. We've all suffered. And rather than look for the traceable, scientific, black and white answers behind our suffering, God reminds us that there is a wild, dangerous freedom in the universe. So there's a mystery to embrace. And there's room for lament. And we're encouraged to bring all our frustration and misery right up to God's feet, the ugliest of the ugly. He won't scare him off. And with it there, we're encouraged to trust The God that we see revealed in Jesus is a God at war with evil, not responsible for it. Let's pray.